0: Welcome to Financial Modeler's Corner, where we discuss the art and science of financial modeling with your host, Paul Barnhurst. Financial Modeler's Corner is sponsored by Financial Modeling Institute. Welcome to Financial Modeler's Corner. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst. This is a new podcast where we talk all about the art and science of financial modeling with distinguished financial modelers and educators from around the globe. The Financial Modelers Corner podcast is brought to you by Financial Modeling Institute. FMI offers the most respected accreditations in financial modeling. For this episode, I'm really excited to welcome welcome Rob Langrick to the show. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. Delighted to be here. Yeah, I know. Really excited to have you. So we like to start every episode off with a fun question. During your career, I'm sure you've seen a few financial models. Tell me about the worst model you've ever seen. I started my career uh, inauspiciously in a way. It was the the dot-com
1: boom. And (laughs) um, I was on the telecoms team, lucky me. One thing that was hot at the time was the alternative network providers, the alt-nets they were called. And so all this fiber was being laid around the world, getting ready for massive internet traffic, which did appear like 10 years later. And so obviously they were spending a lot of money on CapEx, uh, but then the revenue wasn't coming in for these providers. And so what you had happening was mergers, uh, reorganizations, uh, write downs, uh, restructurings and so on, the nightmare of analysts. And there was me and new analysts trying to model them, not realizing this was like not normal, (laughs) right? And so I inherited a model and I couldn't figure out what was going on as I was kind of punching in all the historic numbers and getting the balance sheet to balance. It always kind of seems a miraculously balance. And then finally, I realized that that was because the the assets was equal to the liability plus equity, as in it had been coded. <laughs> to balance, <laughs> so um, uh, so yeah, that was uh, you know maybe the person who used to have the model that was their their best solution to this conundrum where they couldn't make the numbers add up. So that was the worst model I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, I could imagine trying to uh, model in a time when there's low revenue and lots of investment is challenging, and then get a model where they've just plugged it, and you're always like, why is this always balancing? Usually, I have a problem with the balancing. Exactly. So what was the takeaway from that experience? What was the learning for you? Well, it was a baptism of fire uh, to equity research, that's for sure. And I think
1: the big lesson for me was um, when you're analyzing a company going through the Ks and Qs and you just can't make it work, there's a reason for that. They don't want you to understand what's going on, essentially. (laughs) I was too sweet and innocent, though. I didn't realize that. I thought there was something wrong with me. The other thing I I learned as well was that uh, the firm I was at wasn't much of a training shop. Uh, And so it was really at that point that I I became an autodidact, a a kind of self-learner. And that was the start of my kind of journey into lifelong learning.
0: Great. I like lifelong learning. And I agree with you. There are times when you're reading something and you're like, all right, they're trying to keep me from understanding this. They don't want to make it transparent because there's something underneath that they want to keep as quiet as they can for whatever reason. Yeah. I mean, one
1: of our more popular readings actually was um, we had Howard Schillett's book, which is about accounting shenanigans in the CFA program for many years. Um, There was also a really famous book actually by a guy called Terry Smith in the UK. He's got this classic anecdote where it was a British Airports Authority uh, many years ago. They managed earnings by extending the depreciable life of the runways. (laughs) So (laughs) he just had these classic stories in there. And so, yeah, accounting shenanigans are some of the things that people... I love the most about the CFA program when we teach you about the tricks that companies can play and kind of how to be on your guard against them.
0: Yeah, no, I remember, you know, speaking of that, over my career, I had a time where a leader told me, you have to pick and choose what payments you recognize. I don't think that's how accounting works. And another one, you know, we're doing an accrual and trying to finish out the year. And they're like, they asked me, well, what do you want the number to be? Well, what's an accurate estimate that we can support for accounting purposes? So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? We'd love to get to know you a little bit better and how you ended up where you're at today.
1: So I was a, let me see, I was a scientist at high school, physics, chemistry, biology. Um, I kind of almost did a law degree by mistake. I didn't know what I wanted to do type thing. And it became very clear. I, I love reading the Financial Times. I was in Europe at the time. And so it was pretty clear I wanted to do finance. So I actually got my lucky, my first lucky break, which is always the most important one actually for youngsters, right? Um, I was a, a foreign student in Norway, in Oslo. And I was interviewing for the banks in London for an internship. It was uh, Morgan Stanley's first summer internship in Europe. Uh, that was summer 1998. And uh, they flew me there from Oslo to London. And lo and behold, my interior was a Norwegian guy. And I'd done this kind of, it's called Norsk for Utlendinger, uh, Norwegian for Foreigners uh, class. So I just speak some very basic Norwegian and, you know, he took a shine to me. I, I really do credit that lucky break to getting my foot in the door in finance. I then went into equity research. I wanted to be more client facing than being a junior banker. I uh, did my CFA, kind of got obsessed with the Bloomberg Terminal uh, as an equity research analyst, and then ultimately wanted to go go corporate. So I wanted to go to business school, go to consulting. I went to Bain and Company uh, here in New York City, uh, doing private equity diligences. And then, at Bloomberg was looking for someone to uh, uh, work in the CEO's office who had been working in a strategy consulting firm. So lo and behold, I'd uh, obsessed with the Bloomberg Terminal, Bain and Company, working in consulting. It was a great fit for the role. Joined Dan Dros' team, the CEO of Bloomberg, on his team working on strategy. Uh, And it was really there that I got the the bug for finance education. There was an education unit looking to uh, offer products and services uh, to uh, universities worldwide from Bloomberg. So that was kind of my big focus area. And then the last thing I did at Bloomberg actually was build a tool mapping the Bloomberg terminal to the CFA program, which I'd done many years earlier. Uh, And that's when uh, CFA Institute uh, took an interest in me uh, and reached out, and and the rest is history.
0: Cool. Thank you for sharing a little bit about your background. Sounds like you went from the the analyst to the corporate world and found yourself in education as you went along the journey. So great. So you you mentioned you started your career. You talked a little bit about it in the previous uh, questions as an equity analyst. Can maybe you talk a little bit more? What did that experience teach you and how did it kind of help you prepare for the rest of your career?
1: You know, the life of an equity research analyst goes a bit like this. You start by um, initiating coverage on a universe and you, they've got to very fix you how many stocks they want willing to cover. So you, you publish these initiation, we call them Bibles. And that's a lot of fun going really deep into a company. And then what happens is you've got to cover that company every quarter, join the quarterly treadmill. And really your life is kind of dictated by earnings season, essentially, four times a year. And so um, that's kind of the life of an analyst uh, with some re- really big thrills occasionally. Sometimes you get it wrong and that's uh, that you feel pretty bad. But when you get it right, you're kind of on top of the world. So I remember it was December 2002. Um, I was covering a Norwegian video conferencing company called Tanberg, now owned by Cisco. And uh, I was the only, ne- I, I switched to a negative recommendation just before their first ever profits warning. And that was a, that was a real thrill, I can tell you. Um, but then, of course, you, you have uh, times when you get it wrong as well, part, part, occupational hazard. The market will humble you. I'd say the big thing <laughs> is you learn in equity research from a modeling perspective, though, you certainly learn how to build a three-step financial model how then that feeds into valuation uh, and how to do a stock pitch. So um, uh, you also learn the workings of uh, the buy side and sell side. So how do portfolio managers work with analysts and so on. Uh, and then I think the biggest thing I took away from it was how you work on the fundamentals with your model, but then macro will do what macro wants to do. So uh, right now, here we are in October, 2023 with the bond yield spiking, uh, which is gonna affect PEs and valuations. And that's not actually in the model of the company at all. So that's a huge lesson as well from equity research.
0: Yeah, I, I think the last one there is applicable in today's world, right? Those interest rates, those macro things. Just look at the last three years since COVID, you know, war over in, in Europe, the uh, oil prices and what they've done, inflation, interest rates. I mean, just one right after another, big macro events that can really wreak havoc on a business.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, you, know, you, can never, you can never kind of predict what's around the corner. Uh, and then as an analyst, though, you've got to uh, cover things like profits
0: warnings, things like big exceptionist events and so on. So yeah, I've seen, I've seen my fair share of it. I'm sure you have. You mentioned you moved over to education, taking the head of education role at Bloomberg. I think that was 2013. So about 10 years ago. What motivated that move? Why move into education? What uh, kind of triggered that? You know, it goes back to kind of being an autodidact. So uh,
1: very curious. I'm, a very, I'm very curious about how things work. Um, and so I, I, I really like to learn things myself. So one of the proudest achievements really at Bloomberg was taking that learning of how to use the Bloomberg Terminal from I had years earlier, build a certification product, uh, which now um, launched that in 2015, BMC Bloomberg Market Concepts now had a million learners go through it, uh, which is not my motivation. My motivation was actually to teach myself the Bloomberg Terminal. And if other people enjoy it, that's great. And it just so happens it's been a, been a wild success. That's great to see. But really, it's, a, it's my curiosity to know how things work. So, for instance, you know, today, uh, you'll have people saying, you know, I think the Federal Reserve will lift interest rates by this much over this next period. You're like, how in the world do they know that? Uh, and the answer is it's kind of baked into the uh, euro dollar futures market. Uh, and so knowing how these kind of things work is really kind of quite rewarding for me. So that's really my motivation to get into finance education
0: was really a curiosity about how the financial markets work. That's great. I love that. And as you mentioned, often the best way to learn something is have to teach it to others because that's when you figure out if you really know it or not. There's times when I've been teaching something, I'll get asked the questions like, I'm going to have to come back to you and go research it. I just don't know the answer. Yeah, that's the top of the Bloom's taxonomy pyramid, they call it, right? Exactly. So that's great on the education in the the Bloomberg. And I I think you were there for about five years in the education role. And then in 2018, you joined the CFA Institute. So first, let's start with what led to you joining CFA Institute. Maybe talk a little bit how you ended up there. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, look, the the Bloomberg role was a lot of fun.
1: Um, It was the middle of the kind of laboratory boom, the finance laboratory boom when schools, every time a school opened, a business school, they'll pour concrete and build a lab. So they'd like to kind of have these uh, these terminal laboratories there on campus to help uh, enroll people whatnot. While I was there, that was when I built that the matrix to link the Bloomberg Terminal to the CFA program, because I realized lots of schools were also not just having these Bloomberg Terminal labs, but they also were CFA partners, university affiliation partners. And so I realized they were interested in both things. Um, and so knowing the CFA program from years earlier and the Bloomberg Terminal um, inside out, I was in a good position to kind of map the two together. So I launched a function on the Bloomberg Terminal, which did that kind of map over and I had to work with CFA Institute in order to you know, get that approved from an IP perspective and so on. Uh, and that was really it. That was when I kind of got the bug thinking, wow, the, the CFA program is itself this other kind of a rocket ship program like the Bloomberg Terminal. And I uh, got to know the team. I really liked them and they really liked me.
0: That makes sense. And I could totally see if you're at a school that's heavy on investment banking and the markets and you know that area of finance, why you'd want to be with Bloomberg and CFA. Totally makes sense why you'd have both of those and how they're would be there's a lot of integration there because they're both serving similar type customers. I could see that. So that's cool. That's fun. Can you talk a little bit about just the roles you've had at uh, CFA, a little bit about what you've done and how the experience has been so far? Sure. I've had uh, really only two roles there. So I joined
1: as um, what's called head of practice analysis. Um, so what that really means is I, I oversaw the skeleton of the CFA program, uh, which is the main credential o- on Wall Street. And so that's the whole curriculum outline. What should we teach? What is to advance the CFA program? What new areas are breaking and so on? So I spent uh, it was a good uh, it was a good two, two plus years, uh, essentially meeting with investors around the world to think about how we need to develop and advance the CFA program. So I would do deep dives into things like ESG, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, fixed income, quantitative methods, quant finance, uh, and I would every year update that skeleton. So my proudest achievement uh, doing that was in late 2019, you know, geopolitics was really becoming a big force to be reckoned with in the financial markets. And so I inserted that into the skeleton, uh, which then came to fruition into a new reading in the CFA program uh, uh, a year or so later. So that was, uh, that was my first role. Which is advancing the content of the CFA program, and it was funny. Um, the person who used to run the CFA program was there when I joined. Uh, she retired in April of 2020, <laughs> so just as the global <laughs> pandemic kind of got kicked off. For the way that the junior kid was covering the telecom sector at the wrong time, I then uh, ascended to, to lead CFA program and tackled the, the pandemic, which was a very kind of fulfilling challenge, taking it a huge paper-based exam into the electronic era in, in a hurry. And in that role, really, uh, I oversee the kind of commercial strategy of CFA program, looking for how we need to position it, how we need to develop it, what new features does the market demand, and so on and so forth. And then how do we, how do we promote that around the world? Uh, so that's my current role leading the CFA program.
0: And say so when you uh, said paper base to remind me, I did level one before I decided I you know, didn't make sense for where I was at in my career, and I didn't do level two and three. But I can remember sitting in a big, huge room, flying out. To Cal- I was living in Arizona at the time, flying out to California, and paper base with the calculator and grinding through. You know, level one for I don't know how many hours it was, whatever the time was. So yeah, everybody remembers it. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. No, I remember just thinking that was grueling and like, probably failed. I, I passed level one, but like I said, never did level two or three, so. It's never too late, Paul. That is true. I I could. I w- We'll see. Since I don't do much in the investment world and I already got, you know, I just did uh, the FP&A certification and I'm going to be doing FMI this year. We'll see if I'm going to add another one to that. In today's business world, financial modeling skills are more important than ever. With Financial Modeling Institute's Advanced Financial Modeler Accreditation Program, you can become recognized as an expert in the field by validating your financial modeling skills. Join the Financial Modeling Institute's community of top financial modelers, gain access to extensive learning resources, and attain the prestigious Advanced Financial Modeler Accreditation. Visit www.fminstitute.com backslash podcast and use code podcast to save 15% when you register. You know, kind of speaking about the program and you mentioned some of the things you did, the geopolitical and different changes. You know, one of the major changes they announced earlier this year to the program, one of the biggest in a long time is the practical skills modules. And one of those included financial modeling. So talk to me a little bit about that. What brought about that change? That was a big
1: change. You know, let's go back to that kid in London uh, a long time ago, right? I would uh, be working by day doing, these, doing, doing the models of all the telecom companies. And then at night, I'd walk home. I lived in central London at the time. Uh, I would study for the CFA program. And it struck me that I'm studying all about these accounting ratios and the CFA program about multiples and comparable companies and so on. And then in the daytime, I'm doing modeling. I, I thought to myself, even then, it's, it's kind of peculiar, why am I not learning financial modeling with the CFA program? And that was really the spark that, that sparked the idea, which is, well, hang on, we should have financial modeling in the CFA program itself. So that was, the, that was the inspiration was essentially, yes, we need to teach academic finance, but we also need to make sure it's practical. Um, so it, it kind of uh, it comes to them in the form that they're going to be used to doing it uh, on Wall Street itself. Um, so that was the inspiration to put financial modeling into the CFA program. Really happy to work with FMI to incorporate that into CFA program level one.
0: Yeah, no, FMI is a great organization. I know you work quite a bit with them to incorporate that. You know a couple questions first is, what's been the response so far? How have people you know responded to that change? It's been overwhelmingly positive.
1: We've been very pleased that our research ahead of time to our surveys, talking to employers, talking to candidates, certainly indicated, yeah, financial modeling would be very welcome. And that's certainly been the case looking at the usage data, and looking at the comments, uh, people coming through coming through the modeling exercises in there as well has, has kind of proven out that we you know, that this was uh, what the candidates actually wanted. Uh, so we've been very pleased with the uptake on on the modeling side. I think the um, what's really cool about it is the fact that it really does start with a blank Excel spreadsheet and go all the way to having a balance sheet that, that balances without you know having assets equal liabilities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: without a plug. Exactly, <laughs> so, without a plug.
1: Exactly. Um, so response has been overwhelmingly positive, and I think that the marketplace may be sending us signals they want us to do more things like this.
0: Yeah, that, that wouldn't surprise me at all, is sending signals of wanting more. I was uh, I don't know if you know Andy Tempty, who used to be at Kaplan, but you know, I had him on the show, and we were talking. And you know, I asked him what he thought about the changes, and you know, his face just lit up. And he's like, long overdue, one of the best things they've ever done type of thing, just super excited. I did a poll on LinkedIn when it first came out asking people what they thought, and you know, it was 80, 90% was positive. There's always a few, but it was overwhelmingly, like you said, people were like, about time. What are the other changes? I know there's the financial modeling, but there's also, I think, two or three others. There's, I believe, a couple choices you have, and they're in level ones and two. So can you talk about some of the other practical skills that you added? Oh, sure. Yeah. So there, there are lots of enhancements
1: beyond practical skills, but on the practical skills side, We've also introduced Python training uh, with the CFA program. So at level one, uh, you can do modeling and you can do intro to Python with a full Jupyter notebook. So hands-on training. And then at level two, you can go into Python use cases. So things like things like web scraping, natural language processing, and so on. Um, and so there's some of the other choices. And then at level two as well, we have an analyst skills training program done by a guy called Jim Valentine, another CFA charter holder, And essentially, he used to run research training at Morgan Stanley. And so he's written a book about best practice for equity research analysts, and he's got a course around that. Uh, and so that's at level two, uh, which is when analysts learn about valuation and so on. It's essentially, OK, you learn the valuation from a CFA program. Now you learn how to actually put that into your research notes and how to promote valuation
0: ideas to portfolio managers. Makes sense. And you mentioned there are a number of changes beyond the practical skills. What were some of those other changes that you made? Um, so we realized that,
1: you know, things are getting earlier and earlier in terms of this kind of arms race, uh, in terms of getting getting credentials, getting it, getting things ready before you hit the ground running on Wall Street. So we've opened up eligibility to CFA program earlier. So now here in the USN on a four year degree, you can do the CFA level one as a rising junior. So two years before you graduate. Uh, which is great because then you can use that uh, success on that exam to, to, uh, for your internship applications. That was one big change. Uh, another change is we recognize that private equity, uh, private credit, and private wealth have been booming in terms of not just the actual asset classes, but also the available jobs in the marketplace. But uh, we wanted to add more to the CFA program, but at 9,000 pages, you kind of restrain, you kind of <laughs> restrain from adding another 1,000 pages, right? So what we did instead, we, we said, okay, let's have three flavors of level three. Um, so you can choose the vanilla flavor, just portfolio management, which is what we've always done, or you can choose a private equity flavor, private markets flavor rather, or a private wealth flavor. Um, so that's the way we kind of squared that circle on the page count restriction. Um, so that's one change we're really excited by, given the fact there's a lot of interest in those in those two specialties. The other things we've done, uh, we have also baked in uh, Bloombo training into the program as well. So level one you have with all the 90 plus learning modules, you have very specific tips on use of the Bloomberg terminal uh, relevant to that area. And the other thing I just mentioned briefly is um, uh, curriculum streamlining. So the curriculum is very long. And what we realized was lots of people coming to it are actually doing an accounting, I've done an accounting bachelor's or an econ bachelor's or a finance bachelor's or STEM. And so there are some basic things they actually don't need to learn again from us essentially so we have a pre-read and so if they've already learned the basics of accounting for instance they don't need to be to study that again and we're not going to test them on it again either so we've actually uh, shortened the level 1 uh, of the program by about 15% so for those people who who have already mastered the, those basics they don't need to kind of go through that again uh, so we think that will be a welcome change for people who have already you know mastered some of the basics in CFA level 1
0: yeah i agree that makes a lot of sense you know when i did the uh, fpa certification they said, look, the level one test, if you have a CPA, you already tested on. So you don't have to take that. Then we'll move to level two. Similar type thing, to what you're doing there. Hey, if you have certain degrees and certain experience, let, let's pretest you. Let's save you the time. Let's not you know, make you uh, spend a bunch of time on something you already know. Exactly. So it just lifts the return on investment
1: of, of time spent, essentially.
0: And then I, I think it's a great idea. I didn't know you opened it up now to juniors. Makes a lot of sense, right? If you're looking for an internship and you can say, hey, look, I complete level one or I'm taking it already. You show that initiative to the companies that you're looking at. They can see you're serious. It's just one more checkbox that will help you in that process. Yeah, and they, and they all know what
1: CFA program is as well. So we think it's a really nice fit for internship recruiting, essentially.
0: Exciting. So just, you know, as you talked about all those changes you know, what do you think is kind of the main benefit of all that for the charter holder? I mean, how does that help them? Well, it's more practical.
1: They're going to need to learn financial modeling anyway. Uh, and so learning it uh, in sync with when they're actually studying the concepts, I think, is, is probably reinforces learning. So they get to kind of settle that, that, that knowledge down uh, more, more firmly, I'd say. Um, hit the ground running. So let's say they are applying for an internship, unlike me going to Morgan Stanley in, in summer 1998. As a law student, I didn't really know accounting. So, you know, being able to go to internships with those basics under your belt will be a huge benefit and help people convert those internships to full-time offers. So hitting the ground running, certainly, or, it, you know, helping them get internships. And then, of course, uh, if they've already done an accounting bachelor or finance bachelor, it's lower time spent studying. So uh, it's a higher ROI, essentially. They would spend less time studying for CFA and yet get the same credential.
0: Yeah, no, I think, I think that's great. I can't even think about how many hours I spent studying. And, you know, it was the year I had my first daughter. So there were a lot of very early mornings trying to study as a very tired person. But that's another story. So anything to shorten it would have been appreciated. That is not uncommon, not uncommon what you mentioned. No, I'm, I'm sure it's not. The other thing you kind of mentioned, you know, when you were first early in your job and not, you know, having been taught maybe modeling or knowing it well, I think that's one of the biggest challenges I've seen in corporate finance. I think investment banking in general does a better job of helping people understand modeling, depending on the role, but you know, where people are modeling a lot, giving them that training. But I know for me, you know, it was all just figured out as you go. Nobody taught me the importance of design or you should use colors. You should think about how you structure your model. I just started building and usually it was frankly a mess early on.
1: You know, I don't think much has changed. It is an apprenticeship market out there. Um, so there are obviously some innovators now in the space trying to professionalize it, clearly, but it's still largely an apprentice, apprentice model. And so it's really down to the individual to take care of their own learning it is what, I, what the big lesson for me. There are some really good package courses now in terms of you know,
0: getting your feet wet, but still, I'd say on the whole, uh, Wall Street is still an apprenticeship training model. I think that makes a lot of sense. I'd say it's true, you know, even in you know, corporate finance, when it comes to modeling as well, you just kind of, you learn it on the job. As you mentioned, there's a lot of programs out there that are trying to help people gain greater experience, you know, take control of that education. One of those is obviously we talk a little bit about is the Financial Modeling Institute and their work that they're doing. So maybe can you talk a little bit about how that relationship came about and your experience working with FMI and what you, you know, kind of what you think of what they're doing? Sure.
1: Yeah. So I first got to meet Ian Schnorr. It was 2019. I met him in London. He came to the CFA Institute conference. Um, so that was great getting to know Ian. He's, he's a ball of energy. He's a force of nature. And he's clearly extremely passionate about financial modeling. So he's it, it, got this really authentic kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of lovable nerd vibe, I would say. He's clearly knows his stuff in financial modelling. He's he's thought about it for 20 years, and so when the time came for us to think about program innovation during the pandemic, it was logical to reach out to him to think about including his intellectual property with with the CFA program. So yeah, we have a great working relationship. He built the companion course for for the practical skills module for level one, and you know he's got a playful character as well. He put an Easter egg into that for me. So. I was working with a lady on my team called Joy, who I worked with at Bloomberg many years. And um, uh, obviously, my name is Rob. <laughs> and at the very end, there's a little Easter egg there. If you listen carefully about, you know, if you do all his techniques in the course, uh, then it won't it won't rob you of the joy of building a perfect financial model. So, uh, <laughs> of course, no one's going to notice that unless they have listened to this podcast. But, uh, yeah, he's a fun guy to work with.
0: That's funny. Yeah, I didn't know about that one. But yeah, no, I've had a great relationship with him and I've really enjoyed working with him. And I can see that him having a little bit of fun with that. Next question I wanted to ask you about is just why is it so important that everyone in finance learn the basics of financial modeling? Why is that really a core skill that we all need to have?
1: You know, I thought about that long and hard over the years. And um, when you think about the financial system uh, in, in its totality, you know, governments take money from from the from society and then redistribute it, right? Where does the where does the wealth actually come from? It comes from corporations. How do they generate wealth where well, you can model that in a three-state financial model? And so it's kind of at the very heart of capitalism, three state and financial model modeling. And so I think it's really important to learn if you if you're interested in the financial markets and, and how wealth is generated, then it makes a lot of sense to learn learn modeling. I think also that kind of humbling I talked about, realizing that earnings estimates are just that, earnings estimates. And actually, if you give it a try yourself on a quarterly basis, you're going to be precisely wrong all the time. And so that kind of humbling, uh, realizing that it's, the sands are always shifting in, this kind of, in, the, in the reflexive financial markets, understanding that rates and inflation uh, and currencies will always um, mean that companies drift away from whatever guidance or estimates they have. That's a really good lesson. And then I'd say understanding news flow as well. So when you hear about the latest news about Apple or the Magnificent Seven and so on, you really, knowing financial modeling really helps you interpret that news flow better uh, and, and see what the companies say every quarter, what the CEOs say, and especially when there are things like profit warnings as well, or what drove that, what, why is that? You,
0: you, you really have an edge if you understand how the actual, uh, how corporate finance works. Yeah, I really like the first part you said there of, you know, the capitalist society really, you know, a three-statement model helps you understand it. It really is incredibly valuable if you're going to work in finance and you want to understand how wealth is generated. Because at the end of the day, in that three statement model, you get to see the cash that's coming out and you get to see what's being generated from operations. You know, what is a business actually able to spin off? Because at the end of the day, as they always say cash is king or queen or right, cash rules. The rest of it is, I like to say, just accounting games to a certain extent.
1: The rest is opinion.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And there's plenty of those. (laughs) All right. So this next section, this is one of my favorite. we got a couple of questions for you here. We call it rapid fire. So we do this with everybody. So you get about 10 seconds to answer. And then at the end, you can pick one or two to elaborate on. And so first question I have for you here, this is kind of a fun one, helps us get to know you a little bit. If you could meet one person dead or alive, who would you meet? Can I meet mystery people? Sure. Satoshi, Mr. Mr. Crypto. Got it. Number two, do you agree with the phrase financial models are the number one corporate decision making tool? Probably. <laughs> number three, will Excel ever die? Yes or no? No. Will AI ever build the models for us? Yes. <laughs> and last one is, we're going to ask you here, what's your favorite Excel function or feature? Favorite thing about Excel? Oh, wow. That, that's an easy one
1: for me. When you highlight a part of the model with numbers in it and just hit the F11 key, it, it immediately makes a chart. That, that's a killer feature.
0: I don't think I've actually used that one. Oh, wow.
1: You'll be addicted. Go, go and <laughs> do it. And you'll be like, yeah, Rob was right.
0: And I've used Excel for a lot of things. And I think I know, now that you mentioned that, I think I've done it by accident a couple of times, but I just never realized that did it. So It'll become your favorite function the moment you do it <laughs> one time. That's funny. All right, so you could pick one or two of those to elaborate on for your answer.
1: I think the will XL ever die is an interesting question. Uh, and I, I think about like Sam Altman, you know, being asked about ChatGPT and is it going to do away with lots of swaths of society and so on? And his answer there is, well, did the calculator do away with learning math? Of course, the answer is no. Uh, and that's his kind of, that's his stock comeback on, will ChatGPT GPT do away with A, B, C, D, and E, right? I think at the end of the day, Excel is just an abacus, right? It, it is a calculator. Uh, and so in the, in the way ChatGPT won't do away with learning math and calculators, you know, what's going to do away with Excel when Excel is just a basically elegant math? You're always going to have to do it, right? And so no, uh, could it be a different company that wins? Sure, we saw the word processing companies in the 80s switch Switch horses. We did see different spreadsheet applications. You got Google Sheets, whatever. Uh, but no, conceptually, spreadsheets are just mathematics. And so, and and until mathematics will be done away with by the robots. I think I think it's here to stay. Uh, that one.
0: No, I definitely agree with you. I mean, I love spreadsheets, and they're they're the perfect form factor for certain things. I mean, if you look at it, whether it's Excel, whether it's Google Sheets, whether it's you know some other application, you look at planning tools, pretty much everything uses the spreadsheet for you to input the data. Some form of a spreadsheet type, a two-dimensional kind of that you enter your information in. It's super easy to do.
1: Yeah, no, it, exactly right. It, it's got a certain elegance to it, an intuitiveness that people like, uh, that I think will be hard to displace because you have to displace it with something. And the question is, what? I'm not sure what that would be. Yeah, you asked the question, are, on the, are financial models the number one tool? The, the reason I said probably Was I've seen lots of people make lots of big decisions, uh, especially when I was in strategy consulting at Bain. And I would say that the model is often the most important thing when you're doing like a private equity deal, for instance. I've definitely seen that. But I think it's just just one branch of logic, right? It's kind of applied common sense in a way. And so I've seen other things be really powerful motivators for people to take action in in the corporate world. Uh, So risk and fear is one of those. Right, for instance, or ideas like why don't you kill three birds with one stone, often very compelling uh, for corporations to take action when you do two or three things with one kind of chess move or now or never use it or lose it. Very powerful motivation to action that doesn't have to be in the model form. It can be. Uh, So I think modeling is just another branch of logic and reason and and rationality. Uh, And so in that sense, there are other things that do compel people
0: to action. If, If you had to say what one thing, sure, modeling. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I like how you put that, right? It's you're using logic to make decisions. One of the most common logical things you build is a financial model. I I can see why the probably, and that makes sense what you said there. So I get that one. So, you know, we're coming up on the end of our time here. I've really enjoyed the interview. We have just two questions left for you. So the first one is, what piece of advice would you have For a college student today who wants to get into the field of finance, whether that be corporate finance or investment banking, but just you can give different advice for each of them if you want, or you can just give it to general finance. I'll let you take that where you want. Yeah, I would say just trying to
1: draw lessons from my life. I'd say make investments when you can most afford to make them. And what that really boils down to is starting as early as you can with with your kind of uh, uh, career thinking, essentially. So think about the, I wasn't even making a speculative bet. When I suddenly got obsessed with Bloomberg in London as a junior analyst, I wasn't—I wasn't intending to go and work, go and get to meet Mike Bloomberg and so on. Even though I did, <laughs> you know, it wasn't—that wasn't my intention. Um, I was just really interested in it and kind of nerded out with it. I'd say. And so making lots of little speculative bets is, is quite wise. You never know what's going to happen. You can only make sense of your life looking backwards, not looking forwards. <laughs> and so I'd say, uh, and and you know, these new sort of little courses as well. I think uh, I think we we talked about FMI earlier. These are little speculative bets, and you never know whether that could blossom into a mighty oak tree later in your career, right? So taking lots of little speculative bets when you can afford the time, that's before life gets in the way, you know, later in life when you you do leave university. So that would be my number one piece of advice. Take learning opportunities as they come. You don't know how they're going
0: to be useful later on. I think that's great advice. And you're so right. You never know when you take those learning opportunities, you invest in yourself, you take those speculative bets and you never know where they're going to lead. Like like you mentioned, you had no idea that one day you'd be working for Bloomberg. I agree with you. That's a, really, that's a really good one. I like that one. So last question, if our audience wants to learn more about you or get in touch with you, what would be the best way for them to do that?
1: Yeah, LinkedIn. I, I, I've connected with lots of folks on LinkedIn. Lots of CFA charter holders, people in the modeling community. I'm very responsive uh, to
0: in message on, on LinkedIn, uh, and also you can you can watch my posts as well. So LinkedIn. Sounds good, and we'll definitely put that in the show notes so people can find you. Again, thank you for being on the show today, Rob. Really enjoyed chatting with you, and you know, look forward to sharing this with the audience. Really enjoyed it, Paul. Thanks very much. Financial Modelers Corner was brought to you by Financial Modeling Institute visit FMI at www.fminstitute.com podcast and use code podcast to save 15% when you enroll in one of their accreditations today.